3: First Contact with Lori Siegel is a production of Dot 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 Media and iHeartRadio.
4: Take me to that night. What happened? You know, it was a game that that sort of lasted over two nights and there were a bunch of billionaires in the room and um, it was it was an incredibly intense you don't come up for air. 36 hours um, and someone walked away and had lost a hundred million dollars.
3: Hi guys, welcome to another bonus episode of First Contact. This time it's a three for one. You're going to hear three quick interviews I recorded as part of the Collision Conference's first at home edition. You'll hear from founders and CEOs about the future of mindfulness and what it means to live being truly present. You'll hear about love and sex at a time when physical touch has now become a liability. You'll also hear from a woman with pretty incredible entrepreneurial instincts. She was responsible for one of the most infamous underground poker tournaments in history. First up is co-founder and CEO of Headspace, Rich Pearson. I'm Lori Siegel, and this is First Contact. Rich, it's good to be with you. Although we were just saying as we were getting started, what strange circumstances we are in. But you're a very fascinating person to talk to during this time because I think Headspace is definitely seeing a lot of—it's always seen a lot of value, but I think probably increasingly so in this environment. Before we get into headspace in the era of COVID, I want to just start with you um, and you personally. You were a successful ad executive um, before stress and pressure led you to completely abandon your job. Now, I know founders talk about these stories and we talk about them so much that they kind of lose their meaning a little bit. So with that in mind, can you just like paint the picture like you were this You know, successful ad executive. Uh, You were like marketing Axe deodorant or something, like all sorts of things. Um, And now you have a wildly successful business looking at meditation and mindfulness. But what was the day before we get into it? What was the day that you decided to stop completely before pivoting?
5: Yeah, I, you know, I'd had a a really fortunate time in my career in advertising. I really enjoyed it. Um, But I think selling deodorant to teenage boys um, for many years, I kind of I just felt like I'd lost a lot of meaning and I didn't really know where I wanted to go in my life. But I just knew that I didn't I didn't want to do that. Um, and I was really struggling with anxiety at the time. And I thought that my job was causing me a lot of the anxiety. So I actually left my job thinking that that would be um, the thing that would fix it. And I actually started to train to become an acupuncturist, which is a much longer story than we've got time for. Um, But it it was really that sense of unease that I had within myself that was kind of coupled with the anxiety that made me think I wanted to take a completely different direction with my life. And that was really the start of the journey for for me meeting Andy, which then kind of led on to to
4: Headspace.
3: Well, it's interesting because you talk about anxiety and Andy, your co-founder, was dealing with. Uh, quite a bit of loss in his life. He had unexpectedly dealt with um, a lot of people he loved dying unexpectedly. Um, And out of this pain and out of this anxiety, he went on. uh, We don't have time for it, but he went on to become a monk. You met him. And so the story of Headspace was born. But this was a company that was born out of pain, out of anxiety, out of someone looking at death. And so I want to take that those roots. And I want to look at this moment. We are literally Zooming with each other because we cannot be with each other, because we are in this global pandemic filled with anxiety, pain, and death. Um, So now as a leader, many, many years later, uh, of a company that looks at this and whose company was almost, I would say, it had a birth out of these ideas. um, How do you think this will reshape reshape Headspace?
5: Yeah, I think... Look, I think human suffering has been around since we've we've been on the planet. I think human suffering is not a new thing. I think the world in which we live in now is particularly difficult because we are just connected all the time. And I think that has had a very different effect on the type of suffering that we've had. Um, you know, you mentioned that we start we actually started off in the recession. Like right? Andy and I met at the end of 2008 in London. And so. I think we felt at the time there was that real anxiety in London then. I think this is even more intense. And the way that we think about it is that mental health, we always felt that, you know, in four or five years' time, it would be in every single conversation, in every single boardroom. And we'd kind of started to see that happening. Um, we We thought that it would be in every school. We thought that it would be part of healthcare systems. I think COVID has just accelerated that journey way, way quicker. I think we've always believed that mental health should be at the centre of health, um, and that you can't you can't separate out physical health and mental health like they're inextricably linked. And I think the situation has forced a lot of these mental health issues that were always there under the surface, it's just brought it into the the mainstream in a in a in a much faster kind of way. And so, you know, we've always believed that that was you know a, th- a problem a huge problem that we wanted to solve. I think it's just accelerated our Our kind of roadmap and our vision way quicker than we could have ever expected.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. I I started covering tech back in two thousand and nine, as we were coming out of the recession. And I think people don't understand that scarcity and pain oftentimes breeds um, some of the most interesting innovation. And and you see things that you know, and some of these edge cases become the center. So I I'm interested to see you know what the future of Headspace like. What is the thing that now you guys are thinking about that you weren't thinking about two months ago because of this.
5: Well, I think it's more just keeping up with the demand. I think our strategy has actually stayed the same. You know, the way that we think about it is um, we think about like the future of healthcare and we think that consumers and brands are going to take an outsized role in dealing with things that they would have never have dealt with before. And I think platforms like Headspace are actually an example of that, where people come to us for things that they would have probably maybe gone to their doctor or healthcare professional before. They're actually coming to a service like Headspace to kind of get help. Um, and technology enable us to scale that in a way that you know we would have never have been able to before. We believe that you know um, mental health is going to have to be you know absolutely at the centre of healthcare systems, and we're seeing that as we work with more and more healthcare systems, especially in the in the US. We're actually providing um, and creating our first clinical strength product that will be for chronic diseases so we're looking at physical and mental um, conditions where we believe that a product like headspace can actually help so that will be releasing at the end of this year and then also our kind of enterprise offering you know we've got over 700 um, enterprises on that on that platform and so all of those things we've been working on those for years ever since we started that's always been a kind of dream and a vision I think this time has just accelerated it all. And for us, it's really about how do we keep up with the demand um, as all of these things start to come towards us at a much quicker rate.
3: Um, And Headspace is also offering free subscriptions, right, to healthcare workers and certain folks who are really on the the front lines and who are dealing with some of these mentally very stressful situations.
5: Yeah, we have an always-on, we've always had an always-on, like, Kind of social impact uh, lens, which is to make it free for teachers K through twelve. Um, but we, when when COVID launched, we extended our free product offering so that anyone could get access to it in the weathering the storm section. And then we made it free for all healthcare professionals in uh, with the NHS. We partnered in the UK. If you've got an MPI number in the US. So if you know healthcare workers and they're struggling, please let them know about it. Yeah. Um, and um, in France, we partnered up with the health ministry in, in France as well. So yeah, we tried to do as much as we can and react as quickly as we could in the moment as it happened.
3: What do you think the future of work looks like? I think about mental health and, you know, and, and a future where work isolated where we're not working together for you specifically how did you handle the transition with your employees home like first of all be honest with us because everyone is you know I, i'm i'm a little over everyone saying that it was completely seamless and that we're all experts in working from home like we had issues setting this thing up so like let's can we just be completely honest like be honest as a leader because you're you're in the forefront. Like what are yeah. some of the challenges challenges you faced as someone who's a leader in the mental health space, helping your employees be mentally healthy as they were going and, and working from home? What will be the challenges we face as we try to shift the workforce uh in a more isolated way?
5: I mean, I'd love to meet the leaders that found it seamless and it was um it was easy. I I think yes, we might have had technology in place that has enabled us to do this. That's one thing. I think the human element of it is very, very different. You know, I'm in my bedroom at the moment. I can hear my wife and my young baby. Um, <laughs> my wife crying, but my young baby's crying. You can't probably hear it, but like that's the reality. And every single person's situation is very different. You know, if I just take our team, there's people that live by themselves. That's really tough. Uh, you know, we've we've just been uh, it's just been announced. It's probably gonna you know um, last into September. We've actually told our team that they're not going to come back to work until September. Um, so there's people on their own. There's people that have got kids that aren't going to have a school year. There's people that have got family that live abroad. like All my family's abroad. You know, my mum's not very well. I, like, there's so many stories of that. And so for us, it's been, how do we be as flexible as possible? Uh, so there's a few things that we've done. One, we have more regular communication on Zoom with the whole company. We've actually instigated Mind Days. So every Friday, we now have a Mind Day where... It rotates, so every Friday there's no meetings, but every other Friday people can take that time off to actually just have some time away from Mm. the computer screens. Because we've just found that yeah, technology has enabled us to work, but to be stuck on your computer screen in an uh, you know in not an ideal environment at home is not easy on mental health. So we definitely haven't worked it all out, and we're trying to. Be as personalized with the team as possible knowing that every single person's situation is very very different
3: yeah twitter said employees um, could work from home forever would you ever consider that i think look
5: we're definitely thinking what does the future of work look like i definitely don't think it's going to be um you know big offices all over the world anymore um i really think it's taught us that we can operate remotely in a really thoughtful way but for some folks it's really important to have that social connection um, and so I think and especially around creativity I think there's ways in which we can use space in a more thoughtful way but I think the way that we're going to work is is changed forever like I, I really don't believe that it's going to go back to the way the way it was before uh, but I personally I would like it to be more of an augmented and choice-based yeah. uh, kind of approach which is how we're thinking about it.
3: what it, augmented as in well
5: I think like as in I think there's opportunities to have creative exploration and um, and kind of coming together as a community in in real life. Um, But giving people the choice that, you know, if you've got a young family, actually, it's really amazing to be able to have Mondays and Fridays working from home where you can spend more time with your kids. Like one of the best things, I think, beside the homeschooling, which is super tough, but to be there for your young children i think for parents when we set we've got a lot of parents at headspace in in particular and so we've set up a parents group and so there are things that i think are really positive but there's things that are difficult with it so how we augment those things to make it work for everyone i think is the way we're going to try and approach it um
3: i gotta wrap it soon so two quick ones um i the the thing that sets headspace apart that i've seen your investors talk about is this data-driven approach um and you know, using a data driven approach to meditation and mental health, um, because I know this is a crowded space from the time that you guys have started this. What yeah. does a data driven approach to meditation and mental health look like? Um, does it predict yeah. when we feel bad? Like, what does the future look like? Take us far into the future.
5: Sure. I, I think if you think about personalized um, health and you think about all of the big operating systems that are going to be built and all the data that, Apple and Amazon and all the the big guys are going to start to collect. We're going to know more about our health than we've ever known at any other time. I think the way that we think about it at Headspace is, you know, we can be the intervention layer that sits on top of all that data and gives you a really personalized experience. The best way to think about it is imagine when Andy had his clinic and he taught people one-on-one and you would go in there and you'd have a very personal conversation and he would direct you down a path to help you with the thing that you wanted help the most with. We believe that technology and data can recreate that so how do we recreate uh, a clinic experience in real life through through the product but do it in a way that is you know where data is incredibly private and that people have the choice to kind of opt into that they're the kind of things that we're we're really excited about so kind of personalized medicine through these these digital interventions are the things that, we, you know, we want to build for the future.
3: Last question. Um, you met a Buddhist monk when you were thinking about quitting your job who later became your co-founder. He asked you one question. The first question he asked you was how much of your life do you spend in the present moment? Um, I want to ask you that question now. Uh, how much of your life now do you spend in the present moment versus, versus then?
5: Way more than I did then, but definitely not enough. <laughs> I think be the would be the answer I mean it's such a hard thing to be in the present moment like all the time you'd be in life you were (laughs) but but definitely I've seen I've seen huge improvements since I've I've practiced since I met Andy
3: and your advice to people about living present during this moment
5: I think for me I think that's the best thing that we can do because we do not know what we actually never know what's going to happen in the future we just pretend that we kind of think that we do it's a control thing and so I think The best thing about learning to be in the present moment is that we we can rest in uncertainty. And there's never been a more uncertain time. And I think the practice of meditation and mindfulness can really help you with that, which is, I think, the most valuable skill that we could all teach ourselves at the moment.
3: Okay, we've got to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. More with my guest after the break.
1: I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes.
6: This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption.
2: We're
7: always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish.
6: Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose, it's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: My next interview is about the future of love. What does it mean to even find someone in the midst of a global pandemic when we're all encouraged to stay apart? And how will online dating transform? Here's Hassam Hosseini, the CEO of Match.com, and Plenty of Fish CEO, Malgasha Green. Guys, I'm excited to be here with you guys, even though I say be here, be socially distant and on Zoom. Um... You both are at the forefront of online dating. And obviously, I think this is a moment where um, physical touch is almost dangerous. So what strange circumstances we are in. So I'm excited to be here to, to be chatting about this. I would love for both of you separately, take me into the dating war room. Like, it's March. Um, the pandemic is upon us, at least here in the United States. Um What were the conversations you guys were having around dating and how it was going to change? Because physically, we potentially weren't going to be able to actually go out and meet each other. What were those conversations like?
7: Sure, Uh, maybe I'll start. First and foremost, we were very concerned uh, about the situation, and we wanted to make sure that our members were aware of the guidelines uh, from their local government authorities. So we sent out notifications to all our members, making sure that they were following social distancing recommendations. And then internally, of course, we also turned our focus to our employees and making sure that they were safe. We were one of the first companies here in Vancouver where we're based uh, to allow everyone to work from home and closed our office pretty quickly at the beginning of um, the pandemic. And we've been able to work from home pretty uh, easily. So we're very lucky from that perspective. And we we were concerned. We didn't know what was going to happen to the business and how people would react. But pretty quickly, we started noticing that uh, there was an uptick in engagement and usage on our platform, which was extremely encouraging. Uh, And so we set in motion uh, our plans to accelerate the rollout of a live streaming feature that we had been testing for the past few months.
3: Hassam, how about you? What were those conversations? I mean, were you nervous? I mean, it it certainly seems like the business could be under attack, like people aren't actually going to be able to meet. What were the the hard conversations like at the beginning of this?
8: Yeah, um, we didn't know what to expect. Certainly, uh, you know, we haven't seen something like this before. Although in my 12 years at Match, we have seen quite a bit. And one thing that we've seen is that um, love and the desire to have meaningful connections um, with others, especially for singles, is really strong. And that's sort of bore out. We, we see that during the pandemic, uh, singles are still looking for a meaningful connection. Um, and like Malgosia said, uh, we have seen increasing engagement, um, double-digit growth on the match side and, and increased engagement, the depth and length of conversations that people are having. And believe it or not, we're sort of seeing um, a swing back to romance, Um, given, like you said, physical touch is off the table, and those pressures are lifted, and we're all virtual dating now. um, We found that um, folks are having more meaningful connections and there's a return to romance.
3: Yeah, how are you seeing people adapting to virtual courtship? I mean, like we all knew, I mean, by the way, before, and I've interviewed dating app founders from the beginning of the times they've launched these apps. And the biggest problem was like the swiping too much and everything was moving so fast. And so now we're beginning to hear what you just said, which is okay, now we're almost going back to this like old romance of people having to slow down. It's like, how are you seeing virtual courtship change in the coronavirus era?
8: So we are seeing video um, getting much more adoption um, than it has in the past. Uh, before COVID nineteen, you know, our data show that in, you know mid single digits, five to six percent of users were even interested in trying video dating. Uh, that number has jumped up to almost seventy percent now during the pandemic. And so at Match, we pivoted fairly quickly. You know, we are one of the only platforms, dating in general, we're one of the only platforms that connect you with folks that you don't already know. So, and we also serve singles, who we found were, were feeling more socially isolated. So we almost saw it as our responsibility to do everything in our power, any tool that we can, we can um, roll out to help singles feel less isolated. So at Match, we pivoted pretty quickly, and within two weeks actually launched our one-on-one video dating feature, it's called VibeCheck. And we've seen great usage of it during the pandemic. And it's a feature that before these times, we felt would have been uh, would have had lower adoption. And uh, it's been a great tool for members to stay connected and actually continue dating and continue feeling that feeling a meaningful connection through this time.
3: Well, I mean, it does feel like before it's a little weird to video chat on a dating app, right? Like there was a certain I would say stigma. I mean, maybe I'm I, I just say there'd be a certain stigma to, to doing that. But something about this pandemic has changed that. Are, are you seeing that, Mal I know Plenty of Fish also launched um, a video feature very early on. I think you guys were one of the first to do that. What was the thinking there? And, and you know, what have you guys found?
7: Yeah, well, to to your point, I think people have very quickly gotten used to video. Uh, We ran a survey about a month ago and found that 75% of singles feel much more comfortable video dating now than they did before the pandemic started. And that's a pretty remarkable change uh, given the short amount of time. I think people are FaceTiming with their family and they're having Zoom calls like this one, uh, whereas before they were having in-person meetings. And so they have gotten used to things quite quickly. And in terms of our live stream feature, just to explain a little bit what it is, it's quite different than the one-to-one video on Match, and it's a one-to-many. Uh, and think of it as as having a host, and then there's many people that can join, but they're not on the video, uh, and they're able to chat with one another, uh, text chat, and interact with the host. Uh, so that it's a slightly different format, and that's something that we were working on since last summer. And the feature was in response to something we had been hearing from our members that. It was really difficult to get out on dates on a regular basis. Dating is expensive. Uh, You have to go out and you pay. And it's not only expensive from a cost perspective, but it's also expensive from a time perspective. A lot of people have children at home when they're dating or elderly parents. And it's really tough to get out and meet people. So we started looking at the live streaming feature as a way to really make it easier, a lower pressure way to meet people online from home. And so when the pandemic hit and we had already been testing this feature since late last year, we realized that this was a perfect time to roll it out uh, to all our geographies. And we did that very quickly in a matter of a couple of weeks. And the response we've seen from the feature has been phenomenal. Uh, in a short amount of time, one in five of Plenty of Fish members use the live livestream feature on a daily basis.
3: And can you just explain it? So like, let's say we're on it right now. How does that work?
7: So there there'll be one host and anyone can live stream so uh, any member of Plenty of Fish any single can go on uh, and start live streaming and a lot of people share their life, they talk about what they're doing and the challenges that they're having, some people share some of their favorite hobbies, some people will sing Uh, and other people join the live stream and then just chat with the streamer Uh, and then we have a a couple of really great features, Um, one uh, is called Next Date so you can go on there and then you can enable the next date mode and it's kind of like video speed dating and people will come in and audition to be your date and it's been really phenomenal uh, adoption because we've had uh, this was looking at the stats this last weekend alone we've had 12,000 matches a day so people are really connecting on, on video through, through this feature.
3: Are there, I mean, I'd be curious to know Hassan for you, like, what do you guys think? I, I know that so many folks are looking at live streaming, like while they're home and, and different ways. What do you think is the future of video for online dating, even in a post coronavirus world?
8: There's no question video is becoming normalized. Uh, I think about my four-year-old daughter who is doing schooling over video and she's a pro at it after two short months. So uh, video is here to stay. And... On Match, you know, our platform's always been around meaningful connections. You come to Match when you're looking for a real connection, and um, we found that one-on-one video can be a great way to, as the name of the feature, Vibe Check implies, just get to know if there's a if if the vibes there, if, if there's chemistry there, if there's a spark there before you actually go on a first date. So in a post-pandemic world, we do I do see. Uh, one-on-one video playing a pretty pretty interesting role and a great role and one that can maybe uh, replace the first date where a quick vibe check on the Match app will let you know if there's a spark there and whether you should invest the time uh, to go and have that IRL first date.
3: This maybe goes into, because there's always been AI and algorithms to try to match this for good, but you can't really replace chemistry, right? That's
8: right. We, we've actually, our members have told us that within 10 minutes of seeing someone on video, They're able to tell if there's chemistry there and 10 minutes is a much shorter amount of time to invest than going on
3: on a full first date um question for you uh Gosher. like you know as you think about introducing live streaming i got to put on my my tech and ethics hat um you know how do we make sure this doesn't turn into chat roulette to some degree like what privacy features or how are you guys making sure that everyone behaves? Because if I know anything about when people get the access, when it comes to dating and sex online to to live streaming, people can behave poorly. So how are you guys making sure that uh, everybody's behaving?
7: Great question. It's something that was certainly a huge concern of mine when we started looking at the future and uh, I feel pretty comfortable that uh, we, we're we addressing the this this concern. Of course, we'll continue working on it to make it better. You can always do more, but we have a uh, live AI moderation of all of the streams. And on top of that, we have hundreds of human moderators that uh, check in on streams in addition to the AI moderation that we have. Uh, there is a very prominent reporting feature. So if, Someone feels uncomfortable with what's happening on the the stream, uh, whether uh, it be nudity or any sort of um, you know bad language or. You know anything illegal happening that clearly conflicts with our very clear community guidelines. Everyone must review the guidelines uh, before opting into the feature. Uh, they the moderators step in right away. The person is kicked out, and depending on the severity, they even get they get a warning or are permanently banned uh, from from the feature and from the platform.
3: As you guys went into kind of building out this new these new products and ways people can interact in the pandemic era, are there uh, features that you decided not to implement, uh, f- for safety reasons or ethical reasons. I saw something about face filters. I mean, I, you know, privacy or, fa- I mean, are there certain things you guys decided not to do?
7: So our, our face filter ban, uh, was unrelated. It was, uh, this past fall, uh, it was something that we, we implemented because, we heard from a lot of our members that they were looking for more authenticity uh, online dating. And face filters are really the opposite of authenticity. You're you're, you're hiding what you look like or um, accentuating uh, your appearance in some way. And you, that's, you know, never good because eventually the person will meet you in real life and they want to see what you actually look like. Uh, so I think authenticity is really important. So that's why we instituted the face filter ban last fall. Um, but to your question, I, I don't think there's anything that we uh not pursue
8: uh, I, I can maybe jump in um so we take privacy very very seriously and one of the things that um, we've decided to do we decided pretty early on is never to monetize our members data so uh, our business model is completely different um, users pay to access more features in our platforms and to your point on privacy you know dating is a pretty private matter and we want and when we decided to to not monetize any of the data that that shared in our platforms. And when I say our, I mean Match and Plenty of Fish all being part of the Match Group uh, portfolio.
3: Is there anything that's been really surprising to you about how your users have been dating during this time and adapting to, I know you guys have done tons of studies. I was looking at some of the stats you guys sent over. Is there anything that's really surprised you about how people have been adapting to this new environment?
7: Yeah, sure. I think one of the most surprising things that we've seen is just much higher engagement from women. And so women have been participating at higher rates. And this is fantastic because this is something we've been hoping and working on very diligently for a while to make women feel more comfortable and be able to engage more on the platforms. Uh, And right now, that is is definitely happening. And I think it speaks to something Hassan mentioned before, that uh, dating has slowed down, there's a return to romance. And I think that really appeals to women and they they feel uh, like... Very much uh, you know th- this slowing down uh, of and more conversation and spending time getting to know one another really appeals to them.
3: Um, how do you some like code romance, right? Like how do you code that into an online experience now that people are paying attention, now people are slowing down. Finally, we have this shift in online dating that people were, you know, people were criticizing this for a long time. So how do you code that into the product of the future of what online dating will be now that people are finally slowing down?
8: One of the, the approaches that we've taken is to, not just relying on AI alone. Uh, love is not something that you want to leave in the hands of AI, I always say. Um, so we actually have a team of human experts at Match that uh, are available to all of our members um, to help them uh, navigate and actually help them get the most out of the platform. And so I think that the marriage of sort the of human expertise along with AI is really the answer. And we are looking at ways that now that we have this team of, of, of experts at ways where they can uh, assist our members even more. And we have sort of big plans. I like can't get into them right now, but big plans down the road of how AI plus human expertise can be the future of, of matchmaking and online dating. Uh,
3: well, I'd be curious to know what that looks like. Um, like a combination of like her? Like her movie Her?
8: Not, not like her. I think okay. it's all around how do, how do, how do singles find their match, their real match, but not just rely on AI and algorithms alone Right, and have experts uh, and some human intervention to help you turn the knobs and, and make sure that you're sort of focusing on the right things. Um, like you're you know, being date, way
3: too superficial kind of thing.
8: <laughs> for example, you know, dating in the real world is never uh, around the checklist. Sure. Right? Um, you know, we, we sort of flex all the time based on the chemistry, the in-person interactions that we have. So we think that... Um, a human expert can help guide uh, member our members um, to focus on what's important. And also, in combination of, of features like VibeCheck, where you can sort of go beyond what's on paper, so to speak, or behind a screen uh, and see someone face-to-face, um, can get at the intangibles when it comes to finding chemistry.
3: Well, last question, because we've got to wrap it. As, as the leaders of large companies responsible for our hearts in dating, what have you guys learned about love?
7: Uh, I think the, the main thing that I've, I've learned through all of this uh, time in the pandemic uh, is that love perseveres. Uh, we have heard from our singles, the majority of singles, almost three quarters, are hopeful that they are going to find a match during this pandemic, which is extremely encouraging. And it speaks to how important human connection is in our lives. And it really is an essential part of our being.
8: I'd echo that. I don't think, um, uh, you know, I I was around that match in 2008 when the last recession hit and we found out then that that love was recession proof. Um, and we've seen it through this pandemic again, that, uh, our members have found a way to continue dating, continue forming meaningful connections. And I heard about a match couple who, um, uh, was supposed to get married during the pandemic. They were nature enthusiasts, and they had to cancel their big Alaska wedding. But the two of them went to an animal sanctuary and, and had, uh, had their wedding, um, just them, in, in, in the wild. And actually, a, a real life a bear was their ring bearer, believe it or not. So um, examples like that we hear about all the time. And we find that love is going to get through this pandemic and anything else we face down the road.
3: I like that. Love is recession-proof and pandemic-proof. Okay, we've got to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. More with my guest after the break.
1: I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. And my best hopes...
6: This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption.
7: We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish.
6: Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever
0: you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose, I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations.
3: Her name might sound familiar because her story was adapted into a film called Molly's Game by Aaron Sorkin. Molly nearly qualified for the Olympics before an injury completely changed her plans. And let's put it this way, she went in a completely different direction. She started running what's become known as one of the most infamous high-stakes poker games in history. It was an underground game attended by everyone, from celebrities to politicians even members of the mob. Here's Molly. Molly, I'm super excited to be doing this with you. Just to give you a sense, I was in quarantine early and the first uh, movie I watched was Molly's Game. So (laughs) I was very excited when they said I would be chatting with you. Um, Amazing. to, To just like go right in, like you, just to give folks a sense who have not seen the movie, who don't know your background, like, nearly qualified for the Olympics before an injury that changed all your plans, moved to LA, worked in a bar, then became responsible for one of the most iconic underground poker tournaments where you had everyone from like Leonardo DiCaprio to famous politicians showing up. You almost um, served time in prison. I mean, you just have such like a fascinating background. by the way, for folks who haven't seen the movie, there's just so much heart and nuance involved too. So like, you just can't like, you just, it's such a fascinating story. Like, let's just start with like, how did you go from Olympic hopeful to like underground poker?
4: (laughs) (laughs) How did that happen? I've been trying to explain that to my parents for, you know, 20 years. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You know, I, I grew up in this very high achieving family. In my family, if you It was kind of like if you weren't number one in the world, it didn't register. My brother is a Harvard-educated cardiothoracic surgeon. My other brother is a two-time Olympian, also um, spent time playing in the NFL. And I had this plan, right? It was going to be law school and the Olympics. And um, something happened. You know, I tripped on a stick. Uh, If you've seen the movie, it's metaphor and reality. Um, On my Olympic qualifier run, I skied over this small little branch that um caused my ski to pre-release and everything was derailed so i think i was primed for a bit of a rebellion um and i went to los angeles just to take a year off in between undergrad and grad cuz i just wanted to like not be serious for a year so i got a bunch of restaurant jobs and then i ended up waitressing at this poker game that um was so compelling to me not necessarily because of the poker but because it was access to all these different people from all walks of life, it was access to their information to capital to power and um, it was super compelling to me and I wanted to stay in the room in the beginning for the for the learning you know there was just so much information flying around the tables there were tech giants, there were finance people, there were heads of studios, heads of banks, and it was just this incredibly rich environment for information and for learning. And then I started to think, well, if I could own this, you know, I could curate these games and I could access any subset of society that I wanted. And so it became a very compelling thing to pursue. It was also insanely lucrative. And so I ended up, you know, my, my short, my plan was get in, create this network, make a bunch of money and then get out but that's not how it worked. <laughs> right, right. Um, but, you know, that, that was the lure of it in the beginning and sort of like the preconditions to why I was so amenable to kind of falling down this rabbit hole
3: and saying yes. And it's like you, I mean, it was high stakes poker and you saw some of the most powerful people in the world mm-hmm. and like these like addictive high moments. Like what? Yeah. what made a great poker player and what was like, and you can even get specific with us, like, because I feel like now it's like, now we've like opened the doors on it. Like, what was like the dark thing? Like, what was the thing that like brought people down? And you can give us names too, if you want.
4: <laughs> <laughs> um, unquestionably, the thing that brought people down was greed and ego hmm. and um, getting out of a logical brain and into an emotional brain into a a mode of like seeking revenge or seeking to prove something real ego driven. Um, The people that consistently won and that did well were able to stay composed. They were able to stay rational. They were able to walk away when it wasn't their night. Um, And they were happy for the wins and, and were able to let go of the losses. So, so much of poker and so much of life is about this like sort of, self-investigation and this healthy mindset is keeping your mindset healthy making sure you're not going into these sort of degenerate modes that are that are very ego driven and greed driven and and everything else falls by the wayside was there any
3: um after all of this i mean and there's such a crazy story that you almost you know you being arrested and this you know a lot of this (laughs) pinned on you and you almost going to prison i mean are there any scenes that stick with you from those games and those nights? You had some of the biggest celebrities in there, the biggest politicians. There was danger. There was there were moments that you saw people at their highs and their lows. Were there any scenes that, after all of this, you're sitting right now? You talk about being in your mom's home in Colorado. Like, does anything
4: stick with you? Any scene? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there are a lot of scenes, and and um, you know, the the night that I saw someone lose a hundred million dollars was just. You know, wow, how's this reality, and then how am I at the center of this? Um, take me to that night. What happened? You know, it was a game that that sort of lasted over two nights, and there were a bunch of billionaires in the room, and um it was it was an incredibly intense you don't come up for air thirty six hours, um, and someone walked away and had lost a hundred million dollars. Um, Another scene that will be forever ingrained in my mind was when the, the sort of hitman for the Italian mob came to my apartment and stuck a gun in my mouth and ordered me to, or basically insisted that I give them a piece of my operation. I mean, you know, you don't get from good girl from Loveland, Colorado to taking on the mob and breaking the law and running the biggest gambling enterprise overnight it 's these it 's these small micro choices that sort of culminate, you know, but in those moments you 're like, "This is who I am right now, this is my life how did how did how did I get here and i 've had so many of those moments and um, in the beginning there there are moments that play out like a movie scene. I was twenty four years old and all of a sudden had all this money and all this power and you know i 'd go into these um Presidential suites and everybody knew my name at the high-end hotels and I you know bought a Bentley with cash and like sort of that That, that version of it um, and then it and then it got extremely dark and and um, You know it, it definitely uh, My life was in ruins when it was all said and done um, But there were there were, there were moments in both of those categories in like oh my gosh look what I created from nothing. And then, oh my gosh, look what I created, (laughs) you know? Yeah. How do you think this moment, um,
3: I don't even know if this is an okay question, but like, how is the game of poker relevant to this moment right now? Like, it certainly seems like this is a relatively high stakes moment that we are sitting in. We were sitting, um, in a moment of pandemic and race riots and and it certainly seems like the stakes could not be higher.
4: Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's felt like there's a swell for a while. I think we're at a tipping point. And I think our choices at this right now mean more than they've meant for a long time. Um, and there are those moments in a poker game. You know, you can just, it, it's friendly, it's friendly, people play. And then all of a sudden there's a huge pot and everything matters. And your choices mean so much more. Um, than they have previously and I think that's where we are right now um, and it's really important to slow down and stay in that objective rational mind and not give in to fear and sort of what the what the rest you know what what the crowd is saying and, and all that and 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 stay objective and stay um, within, you know, aligned with with what you believe in and your morality, and and act wisely because it really matters right now. When you had um, the
3: FBI show up at your door, when you thought you were going to be going away for a long time, um, how did you? What did? What was your head like?
4: Not a nice neighborhood to be in. <laughs> yeah. Like what? It, what? T-
3: take me into that neighborhood. Um, and how did you deal with the high stakes? Um, Pressure of that of that moment, like what advice would you give to people in their head,
4: like mentally
3: dealing with that yeah. kind of thing?
4: I think you never know who you're going to be until you get to a, a really big breaking point. Yeah, um, and I think it comes down to making a simple choice: Am I going to let this crush me, or am I going to do whatever it takes to be on the good side of history to um, to make it work, to battle back, to have redemption to be part of redemption, and I think you have to realign to that choice every day. I think there are things that we can do to keep ourselves healthy. I know that I've leaned in even more to the things that I know that that keep me out of fear and that um, sort of keep me in solution and, and in contribution and I think one of the greatest tools I've ever found for that is meditation. It really is extraordinary in, in training our mind to stay focused and stay um, sort of out of the the lower brain the um the amygdala stuff, and then um you know, I think the other thing is is that we can um instead of acting on fear, we can act contrary to fear, which is be of service, you know, do the things that scare you that can that can make you part of this larger solution in the world to yourself, whatever it is um so I think it's just not giving in yeah. to to these sort of instincts or, or, or these demands and continuing to go high, continuing to go high, continuing to, like, overcome limitations. But, I mean, I just, I don't want anyone to think that during those times where I had burned my life to the ground and I was hopeless, uh, or it seemed hopeless, that I woke up every day with, like, this rosy disposition. That's not how it was at all. Um, it's just a matter of continuing to fight the good fight, I think. You know, when um,
3: a lot of, I think, what uh, where a lot of people looked at you in a different way was after Molly's Game, right? This this movie that came out that shed a different light on you, that showed you in a more nuanced way. That when the tabloids, mm-hmm. when your story initially came out, I mean, not to go full on, but, you know, you were made oh, out to be a certain way and the tabloids as this, you know, kind of like crazy woman who is like this evil person. <laughs> like, no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm saying it, no, you know. No, for sure, and, and, 100%. And what I don't think people understand is that you fought to have your story told. I think the you fought to change the narrative um, and you actually sought out Aaron Sorkin, who for folks who don't know is like a, a famous director. He was did social network, but you fought to change your story. Um, or to have your story told, um, in a dimensional way, in a dimensional way. Why, what was the misconception about you? And tell me about what you told Aaron Sorkin.
4: Okay. Um, so for sure, the tabloid reports were so one dimensional and they went straight to sort of what happens so oftentimes when we're talking about women, what she looked like, um, who were her romantic endeavors and sort of like the, the manipulative nature of it, and you know I, I built a, a a huge business, and I was the bank for this business, and I was the owner and operator, and I ran it very well for seven and a half years until I made some really poor choices and um, I knew that i I needed to sort of do a rebrand um, because I knew the truth, and I knew that there were mistakes I made, and I th- think that's just as important to include as but I wanted a a full and balanced picture. And I, um, I really believed that if I could tell that story, there would be, that could be a springboard to, to a a second chance. And yeah, no one wanted to touch this movie. Everyone said there's so many powerful people in DC, LA, and New York that will never let this get made. And everyone was terrified. Um, and I said, you know, I'm going to just go straight to the top of my favorite writer in the world and see if he might be interested. And, um, I went and I, I sort of told Aaron my story from start to finish and the parts that weren't told in the press. And, and um, you know, he went into the meeting thinking, I'll, I'll take this meeting as a favor to a friend, but I'm not so interested in, in this or, or what this is. And he left with a very different um, opinion. And that's why I think it's so important to tell the stories of our lives in a balanced way in a, in a dimensional way. And, and for also everybody to understand that things are not black and white. We're not always just good or just bad. Sometimes it it is like that, but there is so much nuance and, and we get to be human beings, you know, and, and that's what I was so happy that he recognized and felt passionate about, about writing and directing. I've got to, I've got to stop it.
3: Um, but i'm gonna ask you one quick question you are clearly okay with risk you ski down big mountains you run big poker games what is it about you
4: <laughs> um it, ironically i was a pretty uh, fearful kid um i had parents that taught me that it's okay to feel fear but it's important to walk through it because fear will rob you of dreams and of a full life um and so it's in it's in that practice of, okay, this scares me. I'm just gonna you know, take a deep breath and 20 seconds of courage, I'm gonna walk in and see what happens.
3: Hope all of you are doing well in these strange times and I hope you guys are adjusting to a new normal. Most important, I hope you're staying healthy and somewhat sane. To watch these interviews and more from the Collision Conference, check out CollisionConf, that's C-O-N-F dot com. And for more from Dot Dot Dot, sign up for our newsletter at dot 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 media dot com backslash newsletter. We'll be launching it soon. First Contact is a production of Dot 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 Media, executive produced by Lori Siegel and Derek Dodge. This episode was produced and edited by Sabine Jansen and Jack Regan. The original theme music is by Xander Singh. First Contact with Lori Siegel is a production
4: of Dot 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 Media and iHeartRadio.